Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this beautiful day and calling us together as your people to worship in your name. And Lord, according to Exodus 34, 6, you proclaimed who you are to Moses with these words. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we see this truth of who you are clearly imaged in Jesus, that according to John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, Lord, our prayer this morning, help us through what we sing, through the preaching of the Word, to grow in our understanding of your steadfast love and faithfulness, your grace and truth. And we confess that our hearts are prone to wander. We're prone to doubt your character. We're prone to advance our own little kingdoms. But please use this hour to do a powerful work in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Our call to worship this morning is responsive from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And together, let us worship. If you're able, please stand. Let's sing together.
Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 117, or it is printed in its entirety in the bulletin, which is two verses. Psalm 117. And I'll pray for our time in the Word. Lord, as we come to your Word, we do pray that you would overcome any distractions and help us to focus our hearts and our minds on you. I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted that you would strengthen and encourage us where we need to be strengthened and encouraged. And as the scriptures are read, I do pray that it would resonate deeply within our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So I want this morning to make my way to the heart of this psalm through a personal reality in my life. So, true confessions. I have an irrational fear of dogs. Not all dogs, but lots of dogs. And I came to this reality a few years ago when I was running in our neighborhood, and this has happened repeatedly, where when I get to a certain house in my route, I'll notice that they have a couple of dogs, and the dogs, they're not fenced in, and I'll notice which way the wind is blowing to see when they will catch my scent. And then I start running on my tiptoes until I get to their house, and once I hear them bark, I'll go into a dead sprint. And I thought, I don't think this is normal. I think I have issues. And so where did these issues come from? Well, from my past. I've had a few traumatic experiences with dogs in my past. It started when I was about seven. I was in a neighborhood with my friends. We were outside playing. I looked up and all my friends are gone. They went inside the house, apparently. So I turn to go inside the house. And as I turn around, eyeball to eyeball is a Great Dane. So immediately, I'm terrified. I turn and run 
Great Dane attacks me, knocks me down. Heroically, I make it to the house. Thankfully, uh, my friend's mom is a nurse because I assumed I needed about 20 stitches in my back. Well, two butterfly bandages later, I was okay. And she explained that the dog wasn't actually attacking me. It just wanted to play with me and, and knock me down and scratch me with the claws. But what I know is I still have two scars on my back and a scarred heart. Years later, I was about 13, at another friend's house, I go in, um, they have a wiener dog. And the mom assures me, hey, the dog will just yap at you. It won't hurt you. Don't worry. So I reach down to pet little wiener dog, and wham, wiener dog bites me in the hand. Later on, as I'm leaving their house, I'm walking out the door. Little wiener dog runs up and bites me in the calf. I'm like, curse you, wiener dog. <laughs> then, let's just fast forward. There's been a few others, but I'll just... Um, so last year, 2019, my own dog gets out of our yard and goes into our neighbor's yard. Our neighbor has a couple of dogs. Um, so I'm over there. I go to get our dog, and I'm talking with the neighbors. They're outside. Finally, we're chit-chatting. Everything's great. I'm about to grab our dog. I reach down. Their dog jumps on me. Wham! Bites me in the arm. The, the wife is horrified. She goes, oh, that never happens. I'm so sorry. Our dog never attacks anyone. I'm like, I know. I've heard this before. There's something about me. I don't know if it's uh, my scent, my looks, my character. You know, they say dogs can judge character. That's kind of scary that they continue to bite me. Um, I was recounting all these stories to our college students a few weeks ago. And they said, well, are you actually afraid of your own dog? And the answer is yes, sometimes. So I have a, uh, I have a big lab. Okay, his name is Vader. This, we were told, was a pure lab. Got it for free. Well, we got it for free because it's not a pure lab. I actually think our dog is a cross between a lab and Sasquatch. Okay, it's huge. For a lab, that is. So uh, there's at times when I come home at night and I'll see our dog. And I'm actually a little fearful because our dog looks spooky. Just the eyes looking at me and I'll say, hey, Vader, it's me. Translate, it's your master. Please don't eat me. All that to say, if, you would, if, if I'm ever at your house and you have a dog and you assure me that your dog won't bite me, just know it's not personal. I won't believe you at all. Because I've heard that before, and the way I think through this is, I think dogs can have bad days as well, right? Uh, you know, uh, pigs entered in a bunch of, uh, or demons entered into a bunch of pigs in the gospel, so who knows? Okay, so sometimes I think about this stuff. The reason I share this is our past affects the way we see the reality of our present very often. And I realize I just used a silly, uh, a silly story about irrational fears. But often our fears are not so irrational. And the fears manifest themselves in deep worry and angst and feeling even paralyzed at times. And where do these fears come from? Our fears come from at times perceived danger, whether physical or emotional, that we cannot control. Or at times... We fear because we feel powerless to preserve that which we deeply cherish. And in a fallen world, there is much that we can fear. Relational strife. Losing our loved ones. Will our kids turn out okay? Losing our health. Our job security. Our retirement funds. Or feel of, uh, fear of failure in fill in the blank. Fear is all around us and in us. And there's much in life that we cannot control. And even this morning, what fears are weighing heavily on you this morning? And what do we do with those fears? What do we do with the fears that are all around us and the fears that are in us? Well, we desperately need the hope and the truth of Psalm 117. Because the reality is we are not in control. But we're also not left to just wishful thinking that things are going to turn out okay. But rather, we live every moment of our lives under a sovereign, good, and personal God. And the scriptures tell us, great 
is His steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So I want us to consider the weightiness of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. This word, steadfast love, or it could be translated loving kindness or various other ways. This is a specific kind of love in the scriptures. The word in Hebrew is chesed. Okay, this is, um, this is a word that if we grasp the weight of it, can change our lives. Hesed, or steadfast love, is not empty promised love. It's not you complete me for now until you annoy me and then it all changes. No, the love that the scriptures are referring to, this steadfast love, is God's covenant love. And it's all based on commitment. And it begins with God and His love towards His people. So the bottom line is, when we read in the scriptures of God's steadfast love and His faithfulness, the question is, what's the proof? The proof is the covenants. So a few things to keep in mind as we think about God's covenantal love. From Genesis to Revelation, we see that it is God who initiates a relationship with His people whom He has sovereignly set apart for Himself. That is to say, God calls His people into covenant. And this relationship is based on mutual commitment with blessings as the covenant is kept, but deep trouble as the covenant is broken. And often in the scriptures, God deals with one person. We could call this person the covenant mediator. And that person represents the group. And we see this as God establishes his covenant with Adam, and then Noah, and then Abraham, and then Moses, and then David. And with all these covenants, there's a repeated pattern over and over. It is God initiates the covenant and is faithful. And, and promises covenant blessings. But the people fail over and over. But God does not give up. We see this with all the covenants. In Genesis 1, 1 through 3, God establishes a covenant with Adam. And he promises Adam eternal life. If Adam is obedient, death, if disobedient. But in Genesis 3, we read that Satan, the serpent, sneaks in and essentially tempts Adam and Eve to eat of the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave them everything, but said, don't eat of that tree, because it will not be good for you. But, doubting God's character, seeking to advance their own kingdom, Adam and Eve eat of that tree, sin against God. But God does not give up. He promises in Genesis 3.15 that one day God will crush the power of the evil one and that death will not have ultimate victory. But then sin spirals out of the garden to the point where the scriptures say God brings a flood, brings a wrath through flood because man's heart was only evil continuously. But God did not give up. In the midst of that, calls Noah into covenant and makes a promise with Noah that he will preserve Noah and his family line in all creation. But then again, sin spirals out of control. And we could say it this way, that the sin and pride of Adam and Eve gets played out on a much larger scale when the descendants of Noah, rather than spreading out and filling the earth with the glory of God, they doubt God's character, seek to advance their own kingdom, By building a tower, the Tower of Babel, with its tops into the heavens, so that they can make a name for themselves, rather than filling the earth with the glory of God. But again, God does not give up. Narrows down to one man, Abraham, calls Abraham into a covenant, and makes a promise that he and his descendants will grow as numerous as the stars in the heavens or the sand on a seashore so that they will be a blessing to the nations. But as the story unfolds, we find God's people often in failure, in slavery, in the land of Egypt. But again, God does not give up. Calls Moses into covenant and makes a promise that he will rescue his people from Egypt and that he will be their God 
and they will be his people. That statement, I will be your God, you will be my people, stated 25 times in the scriptures. It's a covenant promise. And sure enough, God rescues the Israelites through the Red Sea and then gives them the law. But right before God states the Ten Commandments, He says this, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, you've been enslaved. Follow me, obey me, trust me. That is your freedom. But again, repeated failure. Doubting God's character, advancing their own kingdoms, But God does not give up. This time calls a covenant with David. Brings David from a lowly shepherd to a great king. Establishes his covenant. Makes a promise that through his family line will come the one true king who will have an everlasting throne. Do we notice the pattern? Over and over, God's promise, blessings of the covenant. Over and over. God's people break the covenant over and over. God does not give up. These covenant promises in the Old Testament, they build towards a glorious hope, despite the failure of God's people, build towards a glorious hope that one day Satan and sin will be crushed, that God will secure a multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation. And the one true king will lead them and secure them. They will be his people. He will be their God. So with all our fears, we can acknowledge our fears. And we can struggle well as remember, as we remember God's covenant, steadfast love and faithfulness. We don't always have easy answers, but we do have a we, we do have a very powerful word. Hesed steadfast love and what's the proof the covenants let's pray Lord we praise you as a God who keeps promises and you've promised your steadfast love and faithfulness to your people forever so Lord we fail over and over doubting your character seeking to advance our own kingdom but you are faithful so thank you for your grace and your mercy And thank you that no matter what we face or fear, we have your covenant promise that you are our God and that we are your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We stand if you're able to sing Christ is mine forevermore.
Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. I ended the first sermon with the point that God's covenant covenant promises throughout the Old Testament point towards and build towards a glorious hope that Satan and sin will be crushed. That God will secure for himself a multitude of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And that a one true king will lead them. That he will be their God. And they will be his people. This is covenant faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. This is fierce loyalty. But there was a huge problem with all of these covenants. The problem was not with God. His promises and His faithfulness, His character was true. 
It was with the people constantly breaking the covenants. Again, doubting God's character, seeking to advance their own kingdoms. But God did not give up. So just as God's people, the Israelites, are neck deep in the sins of hypocrisy, idolatry, greed, injustice, and you name it, the voice rings out of Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each of them teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is good news. All of the covenants pointed towards this glorious covenant, and all of the covenants find their fulfillment in this covenant. This is the new covenant And that it goes far beyond all the other covenants. This covenant promises that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the law will be written not on stones, but on the hearts of God's people. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God's people will embrace the covenant from the heart. God will be their God. They will be His people. He will forgive their sins. He will remember their sins no more. And so the new in this covenant is Jesus. God himself will take on flesh and take on the curse of the broken covenant on the cross, thereby rescuing his people from the sin and from the curse of sin. We can think of it this way. Jesus is the faithful Adam who was fully obedient to his father and crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. Jesus is the faithful Noah who took the flood of God's wrath on the cross. Jesus is the faithful Abraham who will lead his people to the promised land. Jesus is the faithful Moses who will secure his people, deliver his people from the slavery of sin. And Jesus is the faithful David who will lead his people righteously as the one true king. Great is the steadfast love of Jesus toward us. And the faithfulness of Jesus endures forever. Now, did you notice who this psalm is written to? Verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations! Exclamation point. Extol him, all peoples! Exclamation point. This psalm calls on all the nations to praise the Lord. The, fed, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God was never to be reserved just for Israel alone, but rather, as the prophet Habakkuk would look forward and say, The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Israel existed and was in a privileged position so that all the nations of the earth might come to know the one true covenant-keeping God. And so let's look back at the heart of the God for, for the nations, again, through the lens of the covenant mediators. God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Have kids, yes, but it's more than that. As one of my professors at Covenant, Dr. Sklar, put it, Covenant Seminary. Um, Enjoy fellowship with God. Or the call was to enjoy fellowship with God. Reflecting His character in the world. And in this way filling all the earth with His kingdom of justice, mercy, love, and holiness. There's a quote that I want to read from the book. God Dwells Among Us by Greg Beal. He says this. Eden is a place of God's presence. 
And the place of God's presence is the place of worship. The expansion of Eden, therefore, is an expansion of worship. Worship fuels mission in Eden. Bearers of the image of God reflect His presence in worship and are propelled forward in their mission to fill the earth with reflection of God's glory, according to Genesis 1.28. Worship is, in fact, the goal of mission in Eden, filling the earth by multiplying image bearers in the temple of God's presence who would worship and reflect God's glory to the ends of the earth. The goal and the cultural mandate is to fill the earth with the glory of God. And then we see this also with Noah. After God rescues Noah and his family, he gives them the same mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But at this point, it's a sinful world. But God will not give up. He will see that his glory spreads across the face of the earth. And then when God calls Abraham into covenant, he says he will bless him and his descendants so that they will be a blessing to the nations. His glory will spread. And in the covenant that God establishes with Moses, in Exodus 19, God says this to Moses and his people. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Listen to that promise. Treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy holy nation. And just think of the contrast on one hand of doubting God's character and advancing our own kingdom, but rather what God calls us to. A kingdom of priests. And what's the role of a priest in the Old Testament? To live holy lives and to stand between God and the people in prayer. And to bring the knowledge of God to the nations. And to bring the people to the way of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So I want to wrap this all together with this thought. I'm going to ask you to go with me on this one. We are called to be gardening priests. As gardeners, we stand between the glorious Garden of Eden and the more glorious garden, so to speak, of the new heavens and new earth. But we stand in a fallen world between those two gardens with the call to spread the glory of God across the face of the earth. We're also called to be priests, if I can say it this way. Standing between God, as I'm pointing up to the cross in the window, and standing before sinful people. Yes, I'm pointing to you and to me. Stand between God and people. And what's our call? People desperately need the grace of God through Christ. And so as gardening priests, our role is to pull weeds and plant seeds. To constantly be pulling weeds of sin and planting seeds of the hope of the gospel. And we do this through living our lives of holiness. We do this by bringing people to God through prayer. We do this by bearing witness to the one true God and the way that we live our lives, but also in our proclamation of opening our mouths of the glory of Christ and his salvation for us offered on a cross freely for those who will bow their knees and their hearts. So we have to see our calling clearly. I am not primarily Chad, the husband of Tiffany, and the father of Peyton, Quentin, Page, and Ty, as great as that is. And I am not primarily Chad, one of the pastors at Grace, as great as that is. No. There's a greater calling. And it's the calling of a guardian and priest. And under that, all the other callings fall. I'm a gardening priest in my home, at my work, everywhere I go, seeking to pull weeds and plant seeds, pull weeds of sin in my own life, and as God gives opportunity in the people's lives around me and the world around me, and to plant seeds of the hope of the gospel. Sometimes it's a full-on conversation about Christ. Sometimes it's just planting seeds to try to get there. 
pulling weeds of sin, planting seeds of the gospel. And God has spread our church out in Lawrence and beyond. Different gardens, different people groups. Wherever we go, wherever we go, I am a gardening priest right here and right now in this place. Whether you are the boss at the job or you're working fries, Lord, help me. I'm a gardening priest in this place. Help me to glorify you. Use me with the people around you. Whether it is with your church friends or it is with people who hate the thought of church, you're a gardening priest. Lord, help me. Use me in this place. Use my conversations. Use my love. And here's the goal. That with our lives, we would glorify God. And that people from all walks of life would repent, would turn from doubting God's character, advancing their own little kingdoms, but instead turn and trust Christ in the advancement of His kingdom, praising the Lord, knowing that great is His steadfast love and faithfulness, and His faithfulness endures forever. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness as manifested through the covenants. And thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness that you were willing to die on the cross, taking our punishment, dealing with the, with the penalty of broken covenant, the penalty of death that you took for us. Thank you for crushing the power of the evil one. Thank you for delivering us from the, the slavery of sin. Thank you for leading us as the one true king. And Lord, in these days, help us to see our calling clearly. I pray that we would, in our own lives and the world around us, seek to pull the weeds of sin, seek to plant the seeds of the hope of the gospel, and that we would seek to live our lives in a way and that you would give us opportunity to bear witness with our lives everywhere our feet take us but also with our lips that we could proclaim the hope the only hope that our world desperately needs and that of Christ Lord our world is not at rest our world is fearful and we your people so often are fearful so help us Help us to rest in your covenant, faithful love. And out of that love, to live as your people, as salt and light. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
benediction out of Romans 15 and here's why in Romans 15 verse 11 the Apostle Paul actually quotes a portion of Psalm 117 and he quotes it and applies it in his context when he says praise the Lord all you Gentiles and let all the peoples extol him yes Christ the only hope for every tongue and tribe and nation and so for the benediction I want to offer what Paul goes on in two sentences later to write in Romans 15, 13. And now receive this as God's benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.